0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 30. This is the fifth chapter in the fourth and final speech in the third round of Dialogue, as Job replies to Brother Bildad and also summarizes and brings his argument in for a landing. I mentioned in the last episode that chapters 29, 30, and 31 really all belong together. In chapter 29, Job was remembering fondly how things used to be back in the days when he enjoyed the blessing and favor of Almighty God. God was on my team, Job says. Life was good. People respected me. And I assumed that I would live a long life, grow old, and die in peace and honor. That's how things are supposed to go for people who know the Lord. But now everything is different. And you'll see that phrase, but now, and now, several times in this chapter. Things have really taken a turn for the worse in my life, Job says. All my blessings have turned to curses. I am sick, alone, and despised. And I can see absolutely no good reason for it. That's where Job is going. In chapter 31, he will basically say that what has happened to him isn't fair. It is a massive miscarriage of justice, and he would like God to show up and explain it. That's where we're going in these three chapters. Here in chapter 30, Job begins to describe the incredible and, from his point of view, inexplicable turn that his life has taken. Here now, the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort in their leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They're driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks, among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, a nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. Job is probably exaggerating here, but the point he is trying to make is reasonably clear. Anderson's summary of these eight verses is clear, concise, and memorable. He says, Job has exchanged the respect of the most respectable for the contempt of the most contemptible. And by the way, let's pause here and notice that it certainly appears as though Job has exaggerated his concern for the poor. He said in the last chapter that that he was the friend of the poor young orphan and the poor old widow. Well, he doesn't sound like their friend now. He calls them a senseless, nameless brood. And he says that he wouldn't let his dog hang out with them. It doesn't sound like Job is quite the philanthropist that he believes himself to be. Now, I'm not trying to convict Job of sin. I'm just saying that one of the shortcomings in the faith and worldview of Job and his friends is that their incredible wealth has by and large blinded them to the reality of the human experience generally, and to the considerable remaining sin in their own lives. Again, we have to remember where we are in the canon and where we are in redemptive history. Job and his friends, at this point in the story anyway, are like first-degree black belts in the discipline of wisdom. They have mastered the basic design. They have a PhD in proverbial wisdom, but they don't fully understand sin its effect generally, and its presence in their life personally. And they don't yet fully understand providence. They're about to learn more about providence, but the absence of that knowledge is actually what has created this drama that we're observing. Things are going on that they don't see. And of course, they don't know anything yet concretely about Jesus. So they are, as I've just said, first-degree black belts at best when it comes to the discipline of wisdom. There is so much that they don't see, and we're being reminded of that here. Job has some blind spots. To say that he is blameless is not to say that he's perfect. It's to say that there is no obvious connection between some grievous offense on his part and these present calamities. It's not to say that he's perfect, and we're seeing some of that. It doesn't appear as though Job is quite the philanthropist that he believes himself to be, but there is no doubt that he has experienced an incredible turn in his circumstances. He used to be a very respected man. Young and old deferred to him. They revered him, verse 9. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come. Amid the crash, they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind. and My prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Not only is Job the victim of his own incomplete theology, but so too is everyone around him. And that compounds his hardship and suffering. You see, everyone around Job assumes that his poverty, sickness, and affliction gives incontrovertible evidence of divine disfavor. Therefore, they all feel free now to treat Job with contempt. Are you seeing that? Brothers and sisters, the point is that if you swim in a theologically deficient environment, then when bad things happen to you, not only will you become angry and hostile and disillusioned, but so will everyone around you. It isn't safe to mourn and grieve among theologically illiterate people. Bad theology creates unsafe environments. That's one of the main takeaways. That's one of the main insights. That's one of the main pastoral applications of this book. Verse 16, and now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Now, notice again that there is no confusion about agency. In this story, no one is blaming Job's trouble on demons or angry spirits. Everyone knows that for anything to happen to anyone, anywhere, it has to have been ordained by God on some level. So there's no point in casting demons out of your cereal box or putting a counter hex upon your occult neighbor. The issue is always, ultimately, dealing with God. God has cast me into the mire. I call to you, God, and you do not answer me. You have turned cruel to me. You persecute me. You toss me about. You will bring me down to death. That's what Job says. This is all about God. And Job knows it. Verse 24. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand? and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil, and never still days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heap. My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Job here says that God should take pity on him, just as he has taken pity on the poor and pathetic people that he has encountered in his life. If I help the vulnerable, why won't you, Job, Dares to ask the Lord. This speech, perhaps more than any other, explains the explosive entry of Elihu into the discussion. He is hearing Job and he is starting to burn inside. He feels like Job is exaggerating his own innocence and daring to accuse God of doing wrong. Of course, we want to remember, as Eric Ortland has recently pointed out, that the Lord's vindication of Job's speech over against that of the friends cannot imply total approval of everything Job has said, closed quote. I think that is true and probably very helpful as we work our way through the final portion of Job's speech. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, You can find those over the website at ww.into-word.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.